pray for God's blessing upon His Word. Heavenly Father, we do look to You now. We have confessed the fact that You are true and faithful, that You always tell us what is right, and certainly we know that we live in a world that tells us many lies. We ask this morning that You would tell us true things from Your Word, that You would give us ears to hear, and that we would live in that truth as we go forward. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture lesson this morning is Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 41. Mark 15, 21 through 41, and you'll find that on pages 852 and 853 of the Pew Bible. You may recall if you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the scene in which Lucy and Susan in the middle of the night wake up and find that Aslan, the great Christ figure who this is this magnificent lion is walking in the woods late at night and they begin to follow him and they wondering where is he going and soon he comes to a particular hill where the white witch his great enemy is located with all of her evil ghouls and beasts and they're wondering what is going to take place before long they see Aslan bound up shaved, and eventually sacrificed, the whole time wondering, why is this taking place? What is happening? Why doesn't He rise up and strike them down? And in a way, I think the disciples must have felt the same way as we have progressed through the Gospel of Mark. We have seen them as they've watched their Jesus, whom they have loved and followed for the past few years, be arrested, beaten, falsely tried and convicted, and now led us led away to be crucified and they must be wondering what is taking place why doesn't he rise up why doesn't he use his divine powers and strike them down why is he giving up last week we saw what it would look like in our own lives if it were not for the grace of god today what we see when jesus goes through the cross is what it would take for jesus to reconcile us to god and so let us read here, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 15. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, 
which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Solomon or Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. You know, parenting comes with no guarantees. And remember a story about a young man who grew up in a Christian home, but eventually turned away from the Christian faith, got involved in drugs and alcohol, became so addicted that he was stealing on the streets. One day returned to his own family begging for money. In fact, on one incident, he actually physically abused his mother in order to steal money from her to feed his drug habit. And the relationship between the son and the parents had become so strained that it was broken. So that eventually, one day, he showed up knocking at the door. The father opened the door, saw who it was, and said, Get out of here. You don't belong here. And the relationship was over. And that's exactly what God declares to sinners because of their sin. Isaiah chapter 59 tells us your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And certainly all the worshipers that have gathered together at this Passover feast in Jerusalem have some sense that that is true. Although they gather together to worship God. And God has invited them to worship. There is something about the temple itself that declares to them, on some level, you're not welcome with me. Because within the temple, there was the Holy of Holies, separated from the rest of the temple and the outer courts by this large curtain. And only one person a year, the great high priest, could go in behind the temple curtain and minister before the Ark of the Covenant, before the face of God and in his presence all others were cast out and so even the worshiper who would come on Passover week to celebrate the Passover and to worship God still had a visible representation to them that there's something so terrible and awful about them that they cannot fully come into the presence of God until now that's the very result of Jesus' cross. We are told here in verse 38 that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When Jesus died and had paid for sins, God Himself rended the curtain from top to bottom, opening up the access that we now have to God. Free access through the grace of Christ so that we come at any point, at any time in life, into His presence. Because now we are reconciled to God. That's exactly what Jesus has accomplished 
in this particular passage. And we need to ask ourselves, what did it require of Jesus to reconcile us to God? What did it require of Jesus? Here's the first thing. That Jesus would resist temptation to save himself. That Jesus would resist temptation to save himself. We've seen up until this point the repeated mockery and abuse of Jesus. All the humiliation that he endured. And that continues at the crucifixion. They, were, uh, they stripped Jesus of his clothing so that he would carry his cross with nothing but a loincloth around him. They would lead him up on this hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. They would make him walk shamefully, just as a common criminal would walk shamefully through the streets in front of everybody, seeing that he was under a death sentence. The onlookers, we're told, derided him. And the chief priests taunted him. Even the two thieves who were crucified, one on his right and one on his left, they too insulted Jesus. It was really a vicious scene. Psalm 22 speaks about dogs surrounding me, wanting to tear my flesh apart. That's exactly the scene with Jesus. He was surrounded by dogs, wild animals that wanted to tear him apart. And clearly they thought Jesus to be a fool, to be a sinner, and to be a common criminal who would to be executed and receiving the just punishment that he deserved. And every one of these things, every one of these taunts was to be a provocation to get Jesus to try to save himself. That's exactly what they say in verse 29. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And then again, down in verse 31, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. They wanted him to make an attempt to come down from the cross to prove that he really is the King of the Jews. That he really is the Messiah. That he is the Savior of the world. And so they tell us in verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They were taunting him to provoke him to save himself. Here's Jesus. He's used to the praises of heaven. He's used to his heavenly father approving him and speaking well of him. And now he has everybody around him mocking him, deriding him, wagging their heads at him, spouting shameful remarks upon him and declaring that he can't even save himself, that he is too weak and too frail. Now, certainly, that's a temptation to display his own power and glory that everybody would see that he really is the Son of God. And not only because everybody is mocking him, but because they're also mocking his heavenly Father. It was the Father who said of the Son, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And nobody has listened. And Jesus loves His Father. He wants to honor His Father so much so that He would do anything that the Father asked of Him. And certainly He would want to display the glory of the Father to everyone who would mock Him. 
But you see, Jesus is too strong for that. He's not going to be baited into saving himself. Instead, he accepts the guilty verdict that the, the Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate, that all the onlookers pronounced upon him that he is guilty of sin. Now, I think the disciples, probably as they looked back upon the cross, realized just how little they understood of it, but that they would come to rejoice in the fact that Jesus would not save himself. Especially as they considered their own moral failures, as they had denied him, as they had abandoned him and left him by himself they rejoice in the fact that He would not save Himself. If you remember as we studied in Sunday school, Psalm 8, David asked the question, basically, who am I that you care about me? David asked that question because he looked at the stars on the roof of his palace and he saw how amazing the creation is and he wondered, why do you care for me? I'm so small. And certainly the sinner as well asks that question too. Not just as we look at the stars and we wonder, why does this great and powerful infinite God care about me? But why does He care about me as a sinner? I have spit in His face. I have denied Him. I have been one of the deriders. I have rebuked Him like Peter. And I have sinned against Him in so many different ways. Not only so, but we, we sense in our own hearts the the lack of glory that we should have as image bearers of God. We have failed to serve Him. We have failed to serve others that we have promised to serve. And there's so many things about us that are unworthy of saving. And so we ask the question ourselves, Lord, who am I? Why do you care about me? What Jesus is displaying here is that He desires His people so much that He would rather give His own life away than be without His people. He would rather stop heaven and earth than be without us. Now, I'm not a fan of uh, chick flicks necessarily or romantic comedies as they're more um, specifically known, but um, I do watch them on occasion when someone in my household wants to watch them. And there's one in particular that I recall called Notting Hill, and it's a love story, of course. At the end, the main character realizes that he, had, he has fallen in love with the other main character, and he wants to tell her before she leaves on a plane flying away from London back to the United States. And his friends are all gathered there as he realizes that he loves her and wants to tell her, and so they all jump in the car, and they're going to race him to the airport in London. And just as they are to take off and every minute counts, the driver looks over and he sees his wife. And she's waving to them goodbye and good luck. Because you see, she's paralyzed. She's a paraplegic in a wheelchair. And he opens the door and he says, we're not leaving without you. And he grabs her and he stuffs her in the car and he shoves her wheelchair into the back and they take off. That's a terrible illustration. But... What it says is that God is like that. He would stop and say, I'm not going anywhere without you. I will not save myself because heaven just won't be the same without you. God had to have 
you. Not just anybody out there. He wanted you. And so on the cross, when He is being derided and shamefully mocked, when nobody recognizes who He is, when everybody wants the judgment of Rome to fall down upon Him, He says, I will not save myself because I'd rather die than live without my people for all of eternity. What amazing love in the heart of Christ that He would give Himself up because He can't live without us. And so here we see that Jesus resists temptation to save Himself in order to reconcile His people to God. But also, secondly, Jesus would suffer for our sins. Alexander White, who was a Scottish preacher in the 19th century, said that when he gets to heaven, after greeting Christ, that the first thing that he would want to do is go speak to the angel who ministered to Jesus when Jesus was suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that he could ask the angel how bad Jesus' sufferings were. And every Christian to some extent wants to know, what did Jesus suffer for me? Paul said, I want to know the power of His sufferings. Right? We all want to know, what did He really suffer for us? Well, none of the Gospel writers really tell us the horrific details of the cross. Maybe that's because they're writing to a Roman audience and certainly the people would understand what the horrors of the cross were like. You see, crucifixions were a public display. They were often done on major roads or at great intersections so that everybody could see this is what will happen to you if you commit a crime against Rome. That's why we're told that the passers-by derided Jesus. Because there are people walking by on a major road seeing Jesus displayed before the world. Crucifixion was a brutal and horrific way to die. Certainly there was great hunger and thirst as victims really hung upon a cross for two to three days before they died. Extreme cold and hunger. It would often separate joints, breaking bones at times, blood loss. People would suffocate to death as they could not hold themselves up to breathe. And I think Mark and the other Gospel writers leave out all the horrors of it because they know that their readers already have seen, most likely, a crucifixion. They know what it is like and they know exactly what Jesus suffered. And this text tells the story of Jesus' suffering. We're told that He was crucified on the third, uh, or on the third hour, that is, about nine o'clock in the morning. And during those three hours, Jesus endured great agony. And so much so that the women, we're told here, mixed wine with myrrh and gave it to Him as an analgesic, but He wouldn't take it. Because he wanted to suffer everything that his people are meant to suffer. But it's not just the physical agony that Jesus endured. There's a greater pain. We read here in verse 33 that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And so from about noon till roughly three o'clock in the afternoon, 
It wasn't just the physical agony for Jesus. It was the agony of all the judgment of His heavenly Father that was meant for sinners being poured out upon Him. And it's symbolized in the darkness that's referred to. Darkness in the Bible is a symbol of God's great judgment upon sin. You remember the plague of darkness upon Egypt as God brought His judgment down upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. Jesus Himself spoke of the outer darkness to refer to hell where God's judgment would be executed upon every sinner who doesn't repent. And now Jesus is in the outer darkness. Suffering all the pains of hell that you and I were to endure. He was despised, forsaken by the Heavenly Father, and He felt it. And so He cried out here, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Jesus felt forsaken because He was forsaken by God. He experienced a, a real and terrible forsakenness by the Heavenly Father. Jesus Himself, you might say, was meant to stand at a distance like that Old Testament worshiper who would come to the temple but could come no further. But now He's not standing in the presence of God because God delights in Him, because God's face is shining down upon Him. But He's in the outer darkness as if the Father is looking upon Him and saying, get out of My presence you don't belong here. Because that's what sinners deserve. And Jesus is taking all the judgment for sin. And the rest of the Bible tells us what happened in those three hours. Number of verses here. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Or Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Or God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And notice the third person in all of, one of those verses. For us. Our iniquity. For us. Jesus did these things. He suffered, yes, but it wasn't pointless suffering. It was suffering that was meant to reconcile us to God by paying for all of our sins. Here we learn of Simon of Cyrene who was the one who carried the cross of Jesus when, when Jesus faltered because He had been flogged, scourged, and beaten so much He could not carry it Himself. Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country he is the one who picked up the cross of Jesus and carried it on. Now Simon had come to worship at Passover. He had come with his family, no doubt. Either they brought their own lamb or they picked one out in the market that they purchased for themselves. And they had taken it to the temple to have it slaughtered in front of them as a visible symbol of, of the consequences of their own sin. And now Simon is following Jesus up the hill to Golgotha. So that when He looks at Jesus being crucified and the nails being driven into His hands and in His feet and the great agony that He endured, crying out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Surely He must have thought, what horrible thing has this man done? 
to deserve this kind of death. And it would only be later that he would realize, no, what horrible thing have I done that this man deserves this kind of death. He began to get a new understanding of the horrors of his own sin. Just how horrific it is to sin against God. To transgress His law. To rebel against Him. To harm other people with our sin. That it would take Jesus suffering like that. Look, we all have a sense of shame in our heart because of our sins, certainly. We have wounded consciences at, consciences at times, and there are many times when we shrink back from God. We think, how could I approach Him? How can I go before the Heavenly Father? Much like, a, like an orphan who is adopted and keeps making mistakes. Maybe he breaks a lamp and he wants to hide it because he doesn't want to be thrown out of the family in much the same way that the children of God feel that way before the Heavenly Father. And what he says is, my son has paid it all. There's nothing left for you to pay. And so as the writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. You know, in most churches, I think probably elders are the last people that other folks in the church would come to to say, I'm really struggling here. My sin is so terrible in this particular area of my life. But an elder who is worth his salt will know that people of God will come to him. And in fact, he would be one of the first people that God's people would come to. And in a way, that ought to be true of God. We ought to come to Him first. He ought to be the first one that we go to when we sin. Not to other people to talk about it. Not retreating into ourselves, but rather go to God because He's so gracious, so merciful, and He has suffered for us. And because He's paid it all, there's great forgiveness in the heart of God. So Jesus is unwilling to save Himself. He's willing to suffer for us. And then finally this. Jesus would give sight to the blind. In order to reconcile us to God, Jesus would give sight to the blind. Now there are lots of witnesses in this passage. Because remember, a crucifixion was a public spectacle. And you might say in God's sovereign purposes, He wanted it to be a public spectacle. So that everybody would know that Jesus really did die on the cross. So that when he came back from the dead, it would be a miracle of God that he would do so. And so there are many witnesses, but not all of them look upon the crucifixion and assign the same kind of meaning to it. Certainly there is the, the chief priests, there's uh, some of the soldiers, there's the passers-by. They're all deriding Jesus. But not all of them understand. Not even... Some of the disciples of Jesus understand. Even the women were told here in verse 40 that there were women, women looking on from a distance. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph. This, this may actually be Jesus' mother. Speaks of them when they had followed Him in Galilee and ministered to Him. And now they're, they're looking on from a distance. They, they can't bear to see their loved one crucified and judged this way they can't bear to watch him in agony and pain and yet even though they're faithful to be there they still don't understand exactly what jesus has done for them but you see it's the work of the messiah to give sight 
to the spiritually blind. We're told that at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, Luke records this for us as he quotes Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Recovering of sight. Jesus in the cross is going to purchase our spiritual sight so that you and I can actually look upon the cross clearly. So that we would not be those people who are lost in sin that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The New Testament speaks of the new birth that we must undergo. In other words, the Spirit of God must come into us and remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, Ezekiel says, to make us spiritually alive unto God so that we can look at the Word and understand it intellectually and believe it. That we can see Jesus and His cross clearly. And it's interesting that Peter, looking back at the cross, he assigns this gracious work of God to the cross itself. He says this, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the cross of Christ that gives us new spiritual sight. We often, I think, think that we have a corner of the market on the truth and that maybe even our ability to perceive the truth as some inalienable right that's guaranteed to us. But that's not true. In fact, the Bible tells us just the opposite. That because of the sin of Adam, we have forfeited the right to see the truth as it really is. And what Jesus does here is buy that right back for us. He purchased it. If it were not for the payment of the cross, you and I would not be able to receive that blessing from God. Because every spiritual blessing comes from the cross of Christ. Jesus had to pay for that too. We pray for people to come to know Jesus. We pray for our children to understand the cross and see Jesus clearly. What we're actually praying for is Jesus pay for that. Pay for their eyesight. Pay for their spiritual eyesight so that they can actually see the cross for what it is. People say ignorance is bliss. But spiritual ignorance leads straight to hell. And Christ is the only one who can overcome that. One of the amazing things about this particular chapter and this episode of Jesus dying on the cross is that even in Jesus' most vulnerable and weak state upon the cross, He was so gracious to give somebody that spiritual sight. If you look here, the person in the whole Gospel of Mark who confesses the true identity of Jesus is a Roman centurion. Verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing Him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. You remember when we started in, my, in the Gospel of Mark? It began the beginning of the Gospel of the Son of God. 
And Mark has been unfolding the gospel narrative this whole time until we get to this point at the very end when somebody finally recognizes the identity of Jesus. That He's the Son of God. And the only way that this Roman centurion could possibly see that is that while Jesus is on the cross, He's giving him that spiritual sight because it comes from Christ Himself. The same is true for us. The only way that we could actually look upon Jesus and believe is He gives us the spiritual sight to do so. So as we think about the cross, we must recognize that there is no boasting in us. The only boasting that we have is in the cross. It's what Paul said in Galatians 6, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This passage in Mark here is, mentions one final detail. Simon the, uh, of Cyrene, we're told, is the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's interesting that Mark includes those two names. Likely it's because they're known to the church in Rome to which Mark is writing. In fact, Paul, in his letter to the Roman church, mentions a man by the name of Rufus, who is most likely this same one here. Paul even speaks of how Rufus's mother, Alexander and Rufus's mother, was a spiritual mother to Paul himself. I wonder if they were there on that particular day when Simon, their father, was made to carry Jesus' cross up the hill. Or maybe they just heard about it later. But either way, as they recall back to when they were young boys and they saw their father carrying the cross or they heard their own father speak of it days later or years later. I think what they must have seen in their father is someone who's not boasting in himself, but rather boasting in the cross of Christ. That I had no other hope. Jesus would not save himself because he wanted me. That he would suffer my death for me so that I would go free. And that even though I may not have seen it while I carried that cross up the hill, I see it now. That Jesus paid it all. And He's my Savior. What did it take for Jesus to reconcile you to God? He took all of those things. And so let us boast, not in ourselves, but let us boast in Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we turn to You and we do want to boast to You now of our Lord Jesus. He has paid everything for us. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Him. You know of His glory. You have glorified Him before the nations and one day You will glorify Him finally when He comes again. We look forward to that day so that we can rejoice in Him with no hindrance. Singing praises to Him not boasting in ourselves, not holding on to our pride, but clinging fast to Jesus forever and ever. It's in His name we pray. Amen.